Hello, my name is Wendy Liebman. I'm the CEO and Chief Shopper of WSL Strategic Retail, and this is Future Shop. This is where I have a fast and furious, occasionally controversial chat with guests about the future of retail and what companies need to think about and do to actually activate that future. The topic today, why building a shopper-centric organization is more critical than ever before. And here's a clue, it's not about the pandemic. My guest is Andy Murray, so who better to have this conversation with? He is, in my mind, the guru of all things customer centricity and customer experience. He is the CEO and founder of BigQuest, which is a company that helps build innovative leaders and solve problems innovatively. He's also the founder and chair of the Customer Centric Leadership Initiative at the University of Arkansas's Walton College of Business. He has an amazing career, founder of Saatchi X through P&G to Walmart, where he was the senior vice president of creative and customer experience in the US. And then they sent him off to the UK to be the chief customer officer of Walmart's Asda company. He is still a chair and trustee of the Asda Foundation. So this man, did I tell you he is the right person to talk to about this? He is. Hello, Andy. Hi, Wendy. Thank you for that very kind introduction. It's good to see you today. It's great to see you too. I've really been looking forward to this because when I say things like, it's the shopper stupid, you <laughs> get it. And a lot of people it. think I'm just being rude. So, you know, it's it's wonderful to have you. How are you? And I'm where doing are you? well. Doing very well. Thanks. Yeah. You're at home. You're in Arkansas. Uh, yes, we're in Arkansas, still obviously uh, in lockdown, but we love uh, being uh, back from the UK. The well, Just came back in March, uh, but love the UK experience for four years. But this time of year, I'm, I'm happy to be in Arkansas. <laughs> well, I think we've got a lot to talk about in terms of what you learned about cultural differences, mm. the shopper in different places, all of that. So we will we will get to that. So, you know, to get started, how did you come to focus on, you know, customer centricity and the customer experience? How did you get to that point in your career? Well, that's a great question. Um, it really probably started for me to come to light when I joined the infamous Walmart team for Procter & Gamble that called on Walmart back in 1990, the end of 1990. And it wasn't really on my radar till then, but that particular assignment, we were one of the early teams, actually the pioneer in some ways of supplier retailer partnerships led by Tom Muccio. And so it was a lot of fun to join that team. But that's when I really started to see the whole customer journey differently because I had known the customer as a consumer uh, and that's it, but not really through the retail space. And when I got here in, in that time period, uh, there was a lot of um, questioning around how how should you look at it? And uh, Proctor went through a period there of looking at and saying, wait a minute, we're doing all of our consumer understanding, but yet we don't really have any shopper understanding. And yet there's a hundred million eyeballs going every week through a store or through stores in this particular retailer. What do we know about them and how do they engage and how's it different than um, other mediums? And so it became an exploratory journey for them back in the, in the mid to late 90s. It's extraordinary when I think about that because the days of big brands, big media, right, and right. retailers almost the sort of warehouse, the distribution place, right, as right. opposed to the, the amount of influence that that shopper in that space had on a brand and there was no connection to it. None. None, none. And, uh, and a lot of misbeliefs, not just no connection, but just um, misbeliefs, for example, what should be on a package and how packaging plays a role in the aisle and how a consumer, I mean, it was so disheartening when I built the agency and started doing some work with eye tracking and shop alongs, going in store. And devastating for a brand manager to know that a customer may only spend about three seconds at shelf and, and 80% of the brand decisions were made at shelf. Uh, and they, and in, in that time of making that decision, 
over uh, they didn't even see 50 percent of the of what's there to offer uh and yet every brand manager at the time was wanting to put every detail and attribute and benefit of the brand on the packaging which made it sometimes indecipherable when you're trying to be at that moment of truth and and make a decision so it was just even the misbeliefs were harmful to the choice process than actually uh helpful and it and it just was an eye opener for many people it's also interesting to me because the thing that struck me over the years is the fact that you know we even though we're uh, executives in companies we mm-hmm. are shoppers too That's and right. yet we sort of it's like the separation of church and state it's that the brand manager sitting in their office so passionate about their brand and what they're trying to say forget that if they're a shopper themselves they'd probably have exactly the same experience right so it, that disconnect exactly yeah it, it is a big disconnect and and I'm sure you found through your research a lot of epiphanies that you would think well might have should have known that if you just looked at it as a shopper but anyway you know it is what it is yeah so once you started on that track mm-hmm. you haven't gotten off it I haven't I've changed the lens of how I've looked at it by um you know fortunate enough very fortunate to find uh success if you will in the agency space and and so I left P&G and started the agency to really focus on that and one of the first hires was uh, Dr. Chris Gray, a PhD in clinical psychology, to think about how the consumer or customer thinks along that decision process. And so we built these things called shopping cycles, which would now be called customer journey work uh, and so or customer journey mapping. So they're, they're, names have changed, but it's been about the similar thing. And then I had an opportunity to uh, go to Walmart, which for an entrepreneur – uh, everybody thought that would have lasted about two years max. Uh, <laughs> and and I, I went to Walmart because I really wanted to see the full journey and look at it. And the inside the retail space was a bit of a mystery to me from working from the agency. And you, you just had a, a, a narrow perspective. And, and to have the 12 different people describe an elephant from 12 different views, right? So I went there to really understand and learn and see if I could make an impact uh, and found it was fascinating and really enjoyed the cut and thrust of it. Uh, it was like being an entrepreneur on steroids in terms of speed of the game and how fast retail moves. But I learned a lot about the way I was approaching Walmart and retail as either a brand or agency. Uh, and I saw where it could be done differently. Uh, if I Like if I knew then what I know now, I would have done so many things differently. But then I had an opportunity after two years uh, in the U.S., I really enjoyed that, um, it, and that's about right timing from an assignment. The opportunity to be chief customer officer opened up in ASDA in the U.K., and uh, having that conversation with my wife of, okay, I thought you were going to do this for two years and retire, um, you know, was interesting, but it's hard to turn down the U.K. and that opportunity, and so we went there, and what I liked about it was it really was a um, a different role than marketing, uh, but, and somehow a lot of the retailers in the UK have have a different perspective a bit in terms of marketing and customer. And so they have chief customer roles and a chief customer officer really brings the voice of the customer to the executive committee and decision-making and, and plays a different role and has a different broader responsibility. The, the numbers are tiny compared to the Walmart numbers, but lots of decimal places left off. But but the the richness of the depth of the experience in a very different culture and market, we think they're similar, but the, the way the shopping's done, the culture's different, and it was just a massive thing. And so that was to be a two-year assignment. That turned to a four-year assignment. And uh, after the four-year time, it was time to come back and try to put all my thoughts together. What have I learned over the last six years on the retail space? So I'm back and uh, working with the University of Arkansas. Yeah. What's interesting that struck me, what you just said, is, you know, in the UK, the that role of chief customer officer is a role that is shop or what I would call shopper centric, right? Customer in the store centric. Here, right. the role of chief customer officer is usually the head of sales in That's, a CPG organization, right? A hundred percent. Yeah. And it's very different. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. Um, I, I would be a bit more involved in uh, customer data, customer data warehousing. How do you uh, look at the customer touch points along the whole journey? Uh, how are you collecting data? What data, what are you doing with that customer data? Uh, that's, you know, important part, uh, uh, corporate affairs, PR, anything that connects to the customer, uh, from any media channel, um, whether it's government affairs or, um, uh, pricing strategy, 
uh, how the retail prices appear to the customer. That's a customer facing thing. And uh, I didn't set the pricing that was still done by merchandising, but influencing a set of customer principles around pricing that said, this is what our brand should feel like across all buyer groups was an important part of it. And that traditionally is not in a marketing function. Yeah. It's so interesting to me because I think about somebody like Sam Walton Mm. and his focus around the customer. Um, And then I listen to somebody like, excuse the expression, Jeff Bezos, who sounds like Sam Walton's, you know, younger son or something. Absolutely. Also talking about it's or it's about the customer, stupid. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. say that. He's not so rude like me. And, <laughs> and those, that focus and centricity um, is very much what you were describing, you know, from a UK standpoint in terms of what's the context for setting pricing and where does my brand fit beyond what the merchant said is the right price. So it's just your, your experience to me is fascinating in all of this. And we'll talk a little bit of later mm. about where you are today and what, what you're doing in building, you know, mm. leaders. But I think it's a fascinating experience. So with all of that in this last, yeah. I'm going to say the six years, although, you know, mm. your experience obviously on the CPG side and agency side is fascinating. Um, what's What do you think has changed most from when you walked into let's say the to walmart and then left and you know came back from asda from a shopper customer standpoint what's what's changed what's really strikes you as what's changed well there's no question omni channel we uh we could go on for hours about omni channel but but that rise in importance because the customer took them there. You know, it's not the most profitable part of your business. And yet the the um, the way to look at store pickup, I guess what's changed is more flexibility and attention to how to, to be shoppable the way the customer wants to shop, whether or not it fits the best financial pro forma or not. Um, I think it it just is is paramount now to do that. And I think the other thing that's changed, which is a learning from the UK, is how much shoppers and customers uh, can influence um, your your total brand. Uh, for example, uh, plastics. In the UK, plastics was a big, big thing, and it impacted where they would choose to shop. Uh, and, their, and the customer's voice around, what are you doing with food waste? What are you doing with plastic? Um, these things became real strong voices that uh, affected how your brand was going to perform in the competitive space in ways that I hadn't seen that uh, six years ago uh, at all. Are you seeing that now that you're home? Are you seeing that more here or is there too much, this sounds disrespectful, noise around the pandemic? So it's. I think, I think if it wasn't for the pandemic, there would be more noise. Uh, there's something culturally different in the UK that this became much higher priority. Uh, it's a more concentrated island, if you will, um, and the competition's really, really tight. You've got four. Think about this: you've got the top four grocery retailers. If you were blindfolded and went inside, it's hard to tell the difference between a Tesco and Asda, Morrison's, or Sainsbury's. And so the product and and there's not a lot of of um, differentiation. Okay, it's it's really big middle. And they could all be on the same car park or two or three of them of the four would be on the same car park with the way the real estate is laid out and the way villages are set up. And so you would have a retail park with two large grocery stores right across the street. So in in the U.S., you, you win that first moment of truth or uh, it's before the first moment, I guess. But you win that truth on or they're going to turn right or left when they come out the car park or out of their driveway. In, in the U.K., it's are they going to go right or left when they get out of their car? And so the, it's a, it's a much closer in, and and as a result of that, you you don't have a lot of variables to work with to win, and customer experience becomes a critical one to to work with because you you, you every everything else in the stack of what you can compete on is is very very tight, uh, and I think that pushes the pushes the industry pushes the retailers further than what they might be drawn or pulled in the U.S. You're not going to find another Walmart format. Uh, right across the street of, the, of a current Walmart parking in a current parking lot, right? That's just, there isn't, well, first of all, there's not another format. And so you're making much bigger choices on when you choose to shop 
versus on a, a tighter space. And so you do have to pay attention and have to be very mature in your thinking around customer experience, I think, in the UK. And my personal opinion is I think there's about, they're about five years ahead uh, the, of the US. And every store we had in, in the UK, all the uh, uh, super centers had a community champion because local was so important. Well, that's, a, that's in a very nascent stage in the US uh, at Walmart, and they're growing that. But these were paid hours to connect to the community uh, and really develop that relationship. And that had been there for 10 years uh, because they saw the value, the role of connecting to the customer at the community level in very profound ways that um, that a lot of retailers in the U.S. may not take it that seriously. Yeah. It's interesting you say all that because as you were as you were describing that situation, and I was thinking about our how America shops research. We've mm-hmm. seen before the pandemic, really since the late two two thousand eighteen through to now, like literally out of the you know out of the research pile this week, these values that American shoppers now have and that are either growing or holding in spite of this, I don't want to call it an aberration, but I will, this very unusual moment. Mm -hmm. And it's things like supporting local, it's sustainability, it's, um, you know, organic, better better organic offering. Some of these values that we call values, not value, that are becoming increasingly important here. And as people are looking to differentiate their offer as retailers that these are things that are now becoming you know more price of entry particularly for younger shoppers that's right we see that so it's interesting to your point about maybe five years behind but also that notion around experience because you know as amazon created that massive disruption and now that does become the guy across the parking lot or across my phone right. right it does, it does start to talk about some of the issues that you're raising in terms of thinking about customer experience. Interesting. It, it does. And, of course, of the pandemic has to uh, advance their roadmap of where they thought they would be by eight years in eight weeks with the grocery home shopping. I mean, that's phenomenal if you think about the shift in volume in such a short period of an eight-year uh, growth path achieved in eight weeks. Uh, which has enormous implications on a number of categories that sometimes we don't even think about in terms of how shoppers are shopping differently. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really phenomenal. And people, you know, we hear it all the time here, both in our data and anecdotally about people who either, you know, dabbled online or never shopped online, you know, whether it's parents, you know, grandparents, mm-hmm. or whether it was, you know, people who lived right. in the urban centers that could just walk out in the corner and pick up whatever, that their whole flipping their their shopping journey has changed dramatically. So is that something, as you think about experience and customer centricity, but the, the sort of yeah. overall journey as I think about that, those moments, those emotional touch points in the journey now, as people will continue and many will continue to shop online for things that are easier to do and get off their list. How do we engage the shopper in those emotional moments that we used to often do in the store? Well, I have a hypothesis and uh, I'm not a futurist. Uh, I don't spend as much time thinking about the future as you do. uh, And you're much more equipped at, at thinking about the future. You've got a lot of data and good things to, to play with, to, to think about the future. But my, um, a bit un- unwashed perspective about the future is is that I and, and I think that something's fundamentally changed. And what people have now realized is that they can buy their essential categories, toilet paper, soft drinks, and the brands that they're familiar with quite easily online, quite easily. So what happens now is what's the the question on the table is what's the role of a physical store? And if the physical stores uh, is if it's not about reason to buy, which I can buy some categories um, online and I'm quite comfortable with that, then what is the reason? And my theory is that it's going to be reason to browse and the browsing experience is the Achilles heel of the online experience. 
it's not a great place to browse. And so if you think about it for a second of a grocery retailer, I'll just use grocery. It could be true of anything, anything that has essentials or, or some categories there. Uh, the categories that you don't need to go down that aisle because you're going to do that online. Um, how are they going to get new items in front of people if there's no more people going down or less people going down those aisles and they're not really, they realize they don't need another flavor of this kind of Coke or whatever, 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 because a lot of the new innovation from suppliers was a fight over shelf space and you had to get out in front of the customer on the shelf. But if those, if the shopping behaviors are changed by category in a grocery store, for example, and these, these categories, I don't need to go down that cause I'm not really interested in browsing new toilet paper brands. Um, then all those suppliers are going to be thinking about how do I get new in front of that? And if you're a retailer, I think you have to really think through uh, what is the customer um, browsing behavior? What will it look like in an, in an aisle? And browsing, I think, is going to have to become a higher priority. And a lot of times it's not a priority. It's about speed and velocity and 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 facings and you and most 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 stores and i think they're finding this out now through the covid pandemic is that they've been um over skewed and under choiced and so as a customer coming into an aisle you've got way too many choices uh, uh skews to look at but not a lot of differentiation in choice and so i think the implication is that you know what pepsi found that um a large percentage of their skews uh only contributed two percent of their sales and they cut the range back significantly because of COVID and sales still look good. Um, so what are you going to put back and what are you going to do with all that shelf space in stores that don't need that many facings because of logistics reasons to stay in stock? So I think it, it creates a couple of big questions. One, I think there's going to be a real desire to figure out what is new. Uh, and what is new product uh, and what will customers want? This was a great opportunity to do some rinsing of categories that had a lot of stuff in it customers really didn't want, but it filled shelf space. So premium on who's going to come up with the new ideas that's really going to meet customer demand. And I think the second thing is every category in the store has to have a reason to browse for them to come down that aisle or it's going to be bought online. And that's the way it's going to get differentiated. And the way to look at reason to browse, I think, is um, is is thinking through what what how do customers think about browsing? And one of the things I learned, Wendy, a long time ago is that um, customers have a time budget, budget, a money budget, and a frustration budget. And if you're in a category that is triggered by refill, let's say razors, and I got razor refills on my list. Um, I let's say I give that category 90 seconds to, top, to shop max mentally, subconsciously, and I'm looking at that space and I got 90 seconds. I'm going to give in that. I go in there and if they hide the bloody refills because they're trying to put uh, new systems at eye level across the thing and I can't find the refill. If I use up the 90 seconds, I actually I'll, I won't buy. It. I'll just walk out of that category. But if I can find it right away because that's what I'm looking for, that's what I really want. I will double back and give that bre- that category the 90 seconds of browsing behavior to look at what's new. And I think it's just understanding the dynamics category by category of how do people shop those categories? What do customers really want? How much time are they really going to give it? I mean, cosmetics will be fine, I'm sure. You know, things that are more emotive to buy, those categories, I think that they, they will be fine. But but that's what I see as an impending dilemma in front of us. Yeah. I, and I think, and, and certainly it's, it's much of what we've seen, you know, essentials, get it off the list. We, I mean, three or four years ago, I remember sharing some stuff with Walmart where we talked about, you know, the majority of the population said, let me get it off the list fast. So I have uh-huh. time for other things. Now, the other things were sometimes shopping, you know, yeah, right. sometimes, but it was to your point, it was what's on the list that I can get rid of on the time budget. What does that open up for? whether it's time with family and friends or it's actually going down another aisle. Um, And I think there are a lot of those um, factors that were emerging way before the pandemic that have just risen to the top because people don't want to physically spend time in places at the moment. They want to be out of there. Right. Now, now they now that they know they can easily get that online. That's right. That's that particular right. category. Yeah. So yeah. think about that, Wendy. What it does to stores macro. I mean, the most expensive thing you can work on in a retailer is macro space changes, because you know you got it. It's it's moving a lot of stuff around. And if you find some categories have now completely changed buying habits, you've you're going to have space challenges that you will need to relay out that store. 
and then that's very expensive and it's capital required to move it through there. Otherwise, you got a lot of baggy space. And you got certain categories that are underspaced. And normally there's not been a lot of change in the last, you know, eight years. And so you could make space, macro space adjustments based on renovation schedules and stuff like that and get through the estate. But, but I think we've seen such a disruption that I, I wonder. Uh, so my one prediction would be you're going to see a lot more store prototyping going on to quickly look at new formats that re, re look at space because it's all been upset. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I think, you know, as, as you think about all of that work and, and even I just challenge how many stores we actually need, right? So how many physical stores do we need? And then what role do they play? And then what do I put in those physical stores? I mean, I think you talked about Walmart. Um, and, and there are a number of retailers who are adding more and more services. You know, whether it's health yep. services, whether it's nutrition, whether it's, you know, obviously click and collect, all of those kinds of things that, that sort of transform the, the conversation about what is this, what is this thing, this four walls thing? And right. what does it deliver based on the way shoppers, what we call as their shopping life? How do they choose That's to right. live their life? And then how does that impact on what they're doing with shopping? And I think about yeah. it also within, those emotional moments. My business partner, Candace, mm-hmm. talks about the story of, of, you know, she's done a lot of click and cl- a lot of order online, pick up at the store through the pandemic. And she's been at Target and she loves that experience. She said, it's great. She said, the, the kids who put the, you know, the, the mm-hmm. stuff into her car are wonderful. Um, but the thing she misses, and it's this emotional moment that triggers so much, is when she would go into Target, first thing she would do is stop at Starbucks in the uh-huh. store get her coffee yeah, and now she's got it in her hand in the cup holder and that's here's what this trip is yeah and it's the browsing moment right Right. i'm here i'm here to look i have my coffee you know the emotion has has you know she's created an emotion and a bubble for herself and so those things that i think a lot about that you know you talk a lot about touch points and the journey uh, and i think about how it's not just the number of stores and the space within the store and the configurations, but within that total path to purchase, where do those moments come? And we can't presume anymore that they were the moments that we had last time, right? We used to have. Well, and to be honest, I mean, one of the realities is store labor cost. If you look at a total retail business model, the store labor cost is is a really big, big, big factor. And uh, as digital comes in and simplifies things, you've got to really look at that. And people don't understand what could be a simple customer experience idea to put in there. If it adds store labor, uh, you've got a pretty big challenging task ahead in, inside the retail space to convince and make the business case to do it. And sometimes those are really hard to pencil out. What's the value of that? You know, I, 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 um, I saw something today that, um, I posted out because I thought it was so powerful. Uh, I, I keep track of Asda and what they're doing. And, and I was so proud of them because they're delivery drivers uh, for grocery home shopping. They added this little thing on their, on their jacket, their uniform that says, happy to chat. And they were working through uh, a project of thinking through what's the most important thing on customers' minds right now. And for many, it's loneliness. And the only human connection they have is going to be that grocery delivery driver. And to be able to say happy to chat is was really thinking through empathy and being very empathetic. I doubt that pencils in the short term in any way because you're always running at speed and want to get those drivers in and out. But the fact they would take that move uh, against the probably is going to be a PL hit. I don't know, but it, it I would suppose so. But the but that idea that's to me is a customer experience touch point that has emotion and empathy. But it's just being right in this particular moment what makes sense. I saw um, another example quickly, a uh, cafe in, you might have seen it on LinkedIn or, or the internet, um, a cafe in, in um, Paris, that coffee shop. And to do the social distancing, they put these huge teddy bears. In, did you see that? I, I thought did. it's brilliant, brilliant. Yeah. What emotion you're bringing to that moment. I mean, I think these emotional moments could live anywhere on the spectrum of the customer journey. Yeah. It's really interesting you say that, and and um, one of them that 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 hit me too was at my hairdresser when they opened up. Instead of having the salon, instead of having you know six feet apart, the labels on the floor that say six yeah. feet apart, what it says is this is your happy spot. Oh, and I, I mean I, I had to take a picture. Of Right. But it's this, you stand there and you think, oh, well, look at this. This is my happy spot. I love it. I mean, it's just these little things that, you know, it shows that 
you recognize the customer, you yes. recognize the moment. It is about empathy. Uh, I think that there's another one that I love that's. Oh, that, I love that idea. Yeah, the other one is, uh, I think it was American Eagle did one that says, uh, what does it say? It says, you're beautiful even six feet apart. You're still beautiful. Oh, I love it. I love it. Two little shoes that as if you walked into that spot and stood there, you're beautiful. I mean, these are just moments to re-engage, I think, when we talk about, you know, the emotional connection through any time that's so so powerful. But you also raise another um, uh, question, and that is the value of the people at a Mm -hmm. time when, you know, we're moving much more to um, self-scan, self-checkout, all of yep. those things, which we've, you know, obviously was in the works, but has ratcheted up, um, you know, the automatic pay systems, all of those things. When you think about customer experience, mm-hmm. where do we put, you know, if we, where do we put the people? What mm-hmm. role do the, the physical people play? I mean, I think about thinking recently, not to give you a chance mm-hmm. to answer, you know, about Zappos and Tony Shade, yep. but when I thought about, what Zappos did in customer experience. You know, it was online, but right. the guys, the women were there to chat and engage. So I think about in this new world that we live in, this omni-channel world, yeah. where do people, live people, not bots, or good bots, make a difference? Well, there's two. Let me let me go to let me go to uh, good bots first. Uh, because that's easier, but the, um, I, I had a chance to interview for a podcast, uh, S- Sarah Fryer, the CEO of next door app. And it's a great, like very understands local community that doesn't have the, uh, anonymous elements to it. And they're trying to create that social environment where you can take care of your neighbor and all that, a good, happy place. I right, talk about happy and yet free to express whatever you want to express. Well, you could think about social unrest. You can think of political environment that could be really, really tough. And so what they've done with AI is they created a kindness reminder and it's a little pop-up. And so if you start putting a post in there that you shouldn't probably do, (laughs) maybe a little bit more negative and hateful and whatever, this kindness reminder pops up and said, Hey there, um, you know, you, this community is about kindness and, you know, you might want to think about editing this if you want, you know, doesn't stop them, just kind of reminds them of what the community is about. Uh, and they they rolled that out, and they saw like thirty five percent of the time that that app popped up, people went back and edited their their what they were going to say and changed it, and it only had to come up once or twice, uh, and they stopped popping up after it came up once because people knew what that what the values were of that community. And I thought, man, that is a brilliant way to like. Can I get that on my work email? <laughs> Could we put it in politics somewhere? No, no. We, okay. politics? we won't go there. We won't go there. We won't we won't go there. there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how many places could that app help us, right? But, but I think that's a that's a sensitivity to taking a proactive approach to try to keep a community kind. And I think that's that's really, really, really important. Um, and then on the human side, um, I honestly think the underlooked space that we need to look at more so, and I haven't seen a lot of people doing it yet, is the call centers when people call in with a problem because that's still hu- mostly human after you get through the call tree. Uh, but, but the humanness of that, and for far too long, many call centers have been reporting up through an operational side or finance side. There's nothing wrong with that, but um, the priority to be customer centric and how many call centers are, are evaluated, not on how fast you got them off the phone, but was that experience so good you wanted to share it with someone else? And if you had an NPS type score around call centers that actually you created that, I mean, to me, that's, that's an amazing thing. Will it cost you more money? Perhaps. But man, that, that human touch point is the weakest link of the chain, but it has the biggest impact on people when, and we, we always found, we found at Walmart that, you know, a friendly colleague interaction can overcome so many sins of failure uh, in the, we're out of stock on this or whatever, but a friendly colleague absolutely completely changes the perception uh, from a bad experience to a great experience, even though they may not have been able to recover the issue. It was that humanity that, that really made a difference in um, how a person felt. Yeah. And I, and I do think as we've now come to appreciate the essential workers, whether right, healthcare right. workers or people stocking the shelves at the grocery stores or the drug stores, that that has um, that value that we now see in people 
uh, beyond they're in my way. I'm trying to grab that off the shelf, one of those products that aren't actually that new that I thought was new and too complicated to shop product. Um, But the value of the people has, you know, has has really risen to another level. I I hope in my, you know, in my dreams that that will not go away and that we'll have recognised that. And you've used the word empathy a number of times. I've told the story, I'm sure, to a lot of people, but when I remember being in a Walmart store in the early days of order online, pick up in the store, and I saw a fellow, um, Mm -hmm. I think I probably told you the story, packaging, packing the grocery Mm -hmm. order, and I knew what he was doing, but I pretended I didn't. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, um, I'm packing somebody, you know, I'm putting together somebody's groceries. And I said, well, that's that's good. Yeah, maybe um, that'll be me tomorrow. And he said, that would be my pleasure. Oh, I love that story. That and I'm okay. just, you know, I mean, on the mm. one hand, I'm at Walmart and that's not what I expected. So it had double rating, you know, double stars in terms mm-hmm. of rating. But it was just the way, the natural way that he did it. And to your point, engaging on a very personal level that you go, yeah. oh, okay. And you you feel good, you know? So, right. yeah. That, but, you know, you're so right. I do hope it stays. I do think that um, there's been a reprioritization to essential workers and acknowledgement of the value and the lifeblood of that. And I, I do hope that sticks. I, I really, really do because it's, you know, you've worked so much in retail and stores, understand the importance of that role on so many fronts and technology is not going to change, not going to overcome that. John Nesbitt said in his, his work, the higher there is a a growth in tech, the higher the demand for, for human touch and that high tech, high touch. I mean, we're pushing tech through the roof with contactless, this contact, you know, no, no, no connection to anybody buying. And yet as that continues to grow, I think there'll be even a higher demand for, um, for for human touch and we've got to engineer ways for that to happen i think that's the piece right so we can and and you know talk we'll talk a little bit about the the work you're doing around leadership but i i do think about that in that ability of um not only the next generation the current generation of you know cpg and 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 actually any manufacturing category um, and retailers to think about what is it that ultimately we want to connect our brands and formats with um we've been tracking for the last few years what we call caring scores not just trust but caring and it's fascinating to look at what's important to people and on dimensions like caring about my health and well-being you know it's not just obvious things like price it's you know how are the people are they nice you know all of these things and it's really amazing to see you know, where people rate, what's right. important, um, and it, it's very reflective of what's going on now. Do you care about me? That's right. And that's a different lens to do I trust you? I love you that idea. I wish that that could actually be rolled out inside of companies as a financial measure uh, because when we start tying the measures together of what gets funded from business planning and such, you know, we, we still use more so ROI type what's going to give me an ROI, but what's going to drive my care scores because we've tied care to the bottom line. Um, I think that's that's brilliant. Um, I still work, as you said, with chair with the ASTA Foundation. And one of the things that um, ASTA does in that space of caring is survey the customers and ask them, what do you care about most? And uh, food insecurity, you know, comes up at the top year after year after year. Uh, and But but by being able to build your programs and around what they really care about versus maybe what you just want to do, um, those are it's just so much easier when you can connect exactly to what, by asking them exactly what is you care about and yeah. getting to know them. I think that goes back to what you said in the beginning around things like sustainability, plastics, right. you know, things that are um, things that uh, you see beginning the small numbers of how they become important to a community, a local community or a a, a generation uh, and and where you can build that in as my my store. I always remember the days we would talk about my Walmart, you know, and if somebody started to say my Walmart or my Target or my Kroger or my CVS, whatever it was, you know, my Selfridges, we'll have that conversation in a minute. Um, You know, that all of a sudden meant there was a different, you know, there was some kind of emotional connection there that was so much stronger and so much richer 
Well, you know what's interesting about that, Wendy, and I couldn't agree more. I think I think what the pandemic has done is um, made people pay attention locally because everything now is being locally managed. And I wouldn't have known who my mayor was, you know, and now I know who the mayor is and the different things and, and every store. But but the tension from a retail standpoint is local doesn't scale. And so you look for national answers to everything uh, because you've got to be efficient. But if you can create local solutions and put more energy in local. I know from a marketing side, when I was doing local, it's local marketing was really tough to pay out because it didn't have the same scale of advertising and media buying and spending and measuring and all that, that you could ever get on a national level. But we always fought to keep some there for whether it's a store remodel and you wanted to tell the community, you know, you needed to have that. But I think there's so many more things now you should be thinking about local uh, because of this that won't go back that the, the appreciation of a store feeling local, and I don't know how you do that, but in the experience, it should be something that'd be a priority to me. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment, but I just wanted to remind you that we have many resources on this topic um, available on our website. We've got our How America Shops research, our most recent around uh, how the world is opening up at retail um, as a result of COVID. Um, our latest report on the big business of well and how wellness is changing as we move through this pandemic. Trend alerts, our uh, weekly uh, What's Up at WSL with latest insights. So just remember, lots of resources for you as you continue to do your business. All available at www.wslstrategicretail.com. So when you think about the next, you know, you say you're, you don't spend that much time on the future, but clearly you do. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about the next two years or, you know, mm-hmm. five, five if you want to be that bold, but the next two how do companies need to think differently about the shopper journey and the experience? And this is, you know, I, you know, I don't know how much I'll interrupt myself as I often do. Mm. You know, I'll say in some ways, so much of this was occurring before the pandemic. And I yeah, know lots exactly. of people talked about things being accelerated. Somebody said the other day, the pandemic has both accelerated and illuminated mm. you know, what's going on. And I thought that was really brilliant. But, but so, Stepping back then, the next two years, the next five years, how do companies really need to think differently about engaging with customers? You know, it's going to, uh, some things are going to happen as a domino effect of what's happening now that will change the way we look at customer experience, in my opinion, in some pretty profound ways. So, let me explain. The omni-channel acceleration, I mean, you're talking about eight-year acceleration, okay? So it's done more than just uh, change the buying habits. It's changing the way organizations work. And what's what's happened is the e-commerce side, the dot-com side of a business, they operate and work differently. And they use, uh, most of them I know, use agile methodology as a way of working. And Agile has a very different uh, test and learn speed to it, scientifically testing and learning what a customers really want in pure customer user experience stuff. And, and the traditional brick and mortar side has never really done it that way. It's been a bit more siloed, a bit more top down. Uh, and the customer experience work you do might be through some general journey mapping, but, but that's not, that's about it. And. Uh, sometimes even a one-off project. What I'm seeing happen is uh, product management as an idea is coming into physical retail part of the business. You can't go down the street here without hearing Walmart talk about agile and product management. But but product management is this co- co- co-creation, two-week sprints, get it out there, test it, improve it, and keep learning with constant customer feedback. Well, if that trend continues, which I think it will because organizations have been more internally colliding, uh, then the kind of customer experience um, initiatives that come out of that model uh, have a much higher chance of being impactful and scalable because they've gone through proper testing than just saying, hey, let's just tweak a store here and take a look at it. And yeah, that looks about right. And, and off we go. Or no, let's kill it before we have any data to say we should kill it. 
uh, because someone doesn't like the look of it. And so it's not always been a very scientific method to test and learn and improve that's driven from straight from customers. In most of my retail experience, it's been more feel, instinct, get it in there, hard to attribute what really is working, but you, you kind of scale it because there was a good uh, C-suite tour and a few people really liked it. Um, it can, I, I'm being a little cynical. So a product management mindset and agile technology being used throughout the total organization, um, you can see multifunctional teams. So I, I think you're going to see, and, and then much more listening happening as a way of doing business, as a way of setting the agenda. I think you're going to see more top, bottom up where tight listening and getting that feedback will create a lot more revolution and evolution uh, on the customer journey work than what we're seeing today or have ever seen because that technology, and just like what happened with shopper marketing, when shopper marketing came in and we started really getting it, you you had shopper marketing analysts and uh, shopper marketing um, category experts that were never on on CPG teams. I mean, the whole thing kind of, I didn't say it grew overnight, but it grew pretty quickly. And I think Agile is that next transformation that's just like it. And so that's what I've been doing with the customer-centric leadership initiative is trying to bring some clarity around what does customer centricity really mean going forward. But I think we're on the on the front edge of a revolution of customer experience and customer journey and shopper journey work. That's the next, it's the next big jump. And I think it'll have uh, much faster turnaround times broken down into smaller pieces that could be done quickly and get much more organizational support to get it through. So that's what I think is going to happen. I think the other thing that's going to have to happen, it has not happened, is we have to come up with better measurements that uh, C-suite stakeholders can use to set business priorities uh, and such to get things funded. Because you know better than anybody, if you if you go and consult and say, if you turn this department around and do it this way, change the fixture, change the experience, change this, the mix, you're going to have a much bigger, better, holistic assignment, uh, um, uh, experience for the customer. And the customer will tell you that. What the customer can't tell you is which one of those can you remove and it still work. And But that's the first thing that happens from a finance standpoint is you try to p- unpick that so that you can do attribution of what's really driving that growth. And we don't have sophisticated measures to tell us uh, how good was the empathy? I mean, who's measuring empathy? Maybe it's going to be in lifetime value that you create. And you can get at some of those with math and data, but I, I worry that the math and data won't keep up with uh, the experience demands that's really much harder to measure. Because when you start putting empathy in the conversation, and that's what's really big right now is talking about empathy, well, that's not something easy to put in a spreadsheet yeah. uh, I've found. Yeah, and I think they're the things that you're raising now that is, you know, you've often talked about executives who are very process-driven and comfortable in that and how do you have them think differently about how to build new ideas, evaluate new ideas, execute new ideas. Um, And it sort of comes back to the very beginning where we are, you know, uh, you know, when you, when you listen to the shopper customer talk about their life and their experience, and I remember some of the Saatchi X work, um, that puts people in a very different spot Does. to say what's the solution to that and how can we right. be more empathetic in a solution for that person, that shopper. Uh, but then we go back to our corners right? and we develop a product or a layout or category management. I, I, we've been saying to people lately, you know, category management is dead. It's mm. now all about, you know, it's all about solutions. Right. So across the entire store. And, you know, to do that is so complicated. Oh, yeah. But, but it does require, as we move forward, those hard discussions and decisions. And even if we don't have all the measurements available now, what are the things we can do? And to your point, what can we learn? What can we test? What can we figure out? What we don't know how to measure yet? Because, yeah. you know, to 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 our way of thinking, to my way of thinking, if we don't do this now, we're going to come out of this accelerated change, right? And either people are going to say, "Oh, it'll all go back to where it was. I feel I'll feel better," and it won't. It, um, it it won't. It won't. I mean, we're we're caught in the chrysalis, and there's you know there's no going back to the caterpillar, and we haven't really figured out what how to be a butterfly yet, but or what a butterfly looks like. But you, there's no going back, and I think that's. Uh, a really big point, and I, I, I'm not a, an agile zealot, but I am. I have seen the power of multi of the the, dis, the discipline of the process forces multidisciplinary teams to work together, where you've got all the experts in the room. 
what I've saw, you know, uh, called cause many customer experience projects to implode on the launch pad was when they hit the reality that they never had store planning involved or they never got operations involved or, and then, or the buyers were totally out of the loop and that's not what they wanted to do with the department. And, and, and that's, that's a shame. Uh, and, but this methodology forces those players to be there and the decisions get empowered to be made on those teams. And so the, the fact that the work we talk about at store level is so complex because of so many stakeholders, um, this is the only method I've seen that would help solve that by putting the decision makers around the table. And so you can't have someone, you know, shooting at it. And people don't kill what they co-create. And if you've got all the right people around the table, they're co-creating with you. It's a lot less likely it's going to get killed. Yeah, no, it it does it does identify clearly um, the challenges that we have to face moving forward, which I think are really many, yeah. but it's actually incredibly exciting. So let me just ask you, you know, a question maybe close to home to what you're doing mm-hmm. now. Um, you know, educating this next generation of leaders and the work that you're now doing at the University of Arkansas, the impetus for that and what do you think as corporations, whether we're on the, you know, manufacturer side or the retailer side, we what sort of talent do we need to be looking for moving forward? Well, I think we, we need to, the reason I got into the customer centric work is that uh, most universities are graduating departments, uh, you know, functional, you know, kind of different areas like that. And as you and I both know, uh, who's teaching customer journey work? Was that in the marketing department? You know, where is that? And how do you teach an understanding and be effective at a principal's level so that you can be great at leading in these spaces? And so, so that's that's why I'm doing it and trying to draw attention to it by talking to people like yourself. Uh, and, and I think the, the thing that to me that's the the unlock that you've got to start in the university level is uh, two things. Learning how to pay attention, which is right brain thinking. Uh, and, and by the way, paying attention, you know, there were a million apples that, you know, fell out of the tree, but Newton's the only one that asked why. And... <laughs> I, you know, it's learn, paying attention to ask the question why is the heart and soul of good, of a uh, good customer centric uh, work that lets you unlock the right brain. First, we've got to graduate students and hire people that and value and promote people that are curious because since the industrial revolution, we've been promoting and hiring people that are achievement oriented, great left brain thinkers. They can pull the pattern, what they've seen, quickly apply it, do it at speed. But a right brain thinker looks at a problem and falls more in love with the problem than they do the solution because they don't know where that's going to go and take them. And it activates the right brain thinking. But but if you're a right brain thinker, in most corporations, you were sent off to the island of misfit toys. I mean, you did not really get – that's not something that's valued. Uh, you don't want original people everywhere. You want a you know, top-down, like, can you just go do this really well for me? Uh, so I think, I think um, empowering right brain thinking, which is the creative ability to pay attention, is really, really key. And rewarding those people and let and giving them a career path that works so you can get a bit more harmonized between left brain and right brain. You're still going to need left brain leadership. But what about right brain leadership, which is the curious ones, the ones that look at a problem and really try to understand it and, lo- and look for the human truth and what's the story behind it. And that's where the great work's going to come from. Uh, and then so that's the pay attention, right brain piece. And then the second thing we're going to have to get much better at is teaching, evaluating, developing empathy and how to be empathetic. Uh, one of the things you and I had a conversation once on uh, when we were in the podcast is uh, how do you tell if a student or a person you're interviewing has empathy? And because I asked you that question and you had a great response. You talked about the questions they asked you back and that uh, you, I don't know if you remember that or not, but there was questions and, and the questions that someone has uh, really determines do they have empathy in their bones or is this something we're going to have to develop in them? Are they going to be right for this job? Um, and I remember interviewing several people over the years where uh, they might have interviewed three or four times before they got to me as the last interview. And I would ask them, do you have any questions for me? And they were like, your team did a great job bringing me up to speed. So no, none really. I'm like, none. I'm like, 
none how could you have none like there's like you have no questions and that that's a that's just a person that's not very curious or afraid or empathy you know how about you know what keeps you up at night i'll take that old tired question if you like but but anything that draws out what can i learn about you and what do you value well that's empathy and I, and so but we don't have a lot of tools in our toolbox to teach empathy and show how it works evaluate it promote people on it and and keep going from there yeah. So that's very exciting because, you know, my starting, uh, my starting piece for every day is what is the question? I don't even know what question to ask someday. Sure, start. So anyway, I saw that in a, in a subway actually on 28th Street right under our office. On the subway on the wall was a, a little icon, a little man that said, what is the question? I was thinking, oh, that's not the way I think about the day. <laughs> so to close off, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to make you answer questions really fast. So at the end okay. of our, or in the midst of some of our workshop sessions, we make people just try and, you know, we call it snap, quickly respond. Oh, not, not their brain snap, like explode. That too, that too but, you know, day. it's Friday. <laughs> come to your day. workshop. I've got to come. Uh, you know, I have that little emoji, right, with the head blowing off. So anyway, so don't think about this. I just want, you know. All right. No, okay. thank you. What's the best example of the impact of a customer-centric experience that you can think of in the last whenever? Best example. Don't be political. Uh, well, you know what? It's weird how the memory works. The best example of that, um, I, I do, I, I'm still, is a recency thing. That whole piece of the of the button saying happy to chat is just rocked me emotionally. That's it. You win. You get it. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. What about on the worst? What's the biggest mistake companies make in this whole area? Uh, ha, 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 ha. Come um, on. You can do it. Uh, yeah. Well, worst mistake is, um, oh, man, I can get, is the bloody uh, calling when you got a problem. And and trying to engage with that brand, and I can go through my phone company. I can go through some of my the credit card companies. I mean, it, it's just been and it's exasper- exacerbated now. And I've just had some painful call trees. Uh, 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 I won't name the carrier, but I got uh, one oh, of those refill. <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, you're not uh, refill. And and they, and they, I tell you, it's been impossible to even get it like uh, anyway it's just very they don't understand how damaging it is to give someone a bad experience okay i'm going to get that name out of you after um biggest surprise during the pandemic biggest surprise is um the rise of the essential worker in terms of a retail space i mean it's just uh the the their day has come and it's rightly so. And I think it's, uh, it's a beautiful thing. That's great. I'm going to ask you one last question because we all need to go and explode our brains or something. Um, favorite retailer, forget Walmart, take Walmart off the list. Favorite retailer, take Asda off the list. Um, you know, okay, fine. All right, I'll take a general. There's a bike shop called Le Mouf out in, uh, in the Netherlands. I'll send you the link. I'm probably saying it wrong, uh, but Lemouf and a couple of things that make them really cool. And I heard about these guys through, I don't know if you know, Adrian Swinsco. Uh, he's got punk CX and he's a great, great guy. And I heard, heard about this retailer. So I checked him out, but basically a couple of things they do well. I mean, bikes have been in scarcity now because of the pandemic. They're really, and it's, you get your bike, you really count on, especially in Amsterdam and, and places. And so what they've done is they've, um, they would get a lot of damage. And if a bike comes damaged, it's a, it's a problem really because it's such a back order and everything like that. So what they did is they, when they ship the box, they put on the box a big picture of a, a big flat screen TV. And, and so it's shipping. So everybody handling that box thinks it's a, it's a big flat screen TV. Damages went down 95%. And I thought that is brilliant. I was going to say thinking outside the box, but that seems like thinking on the box, right? On the box. (laughs) Any touch point can be reinvented. That's right. Even the packaging to put a big flat screen TV on the box. I thought, okay, these guys are clever. And they've done so many other cool things. Once I started investigating a little bit, they, um, number one thing in Amsterdam is not uh, if your bike will get stolen and when it gets stolen. 
and they offered because they figured out that's a big problem. And these bikes are, you know, two grand and they're not cheap bikes. They put a chip in there. That's really hard to like, never find it, a GPS tracking chip. And they said in seven, um, we'll find your bike in seven days or we'll replace it. And that was crazy, but they knew they could find that bike in seven days because of that chip. And so I was like, okay, that's cool. That's really thinking through what matters to your customer that's great. Uh, was that your bike might get stolen. That's great. So fine, 100% guarantee. Perfect, perfect example. Well, as, as I knew we would, we could talk forever. Yes, we could. Uh, we've got so much to I just feel like it's such, you know, the kindred spirits, the children yeah. coming home together. So I can't thank you enough for doing this. This has been a, a great pleasure. As always, and I, I look forward to following your adventures. Both in we yeah. didn't talk about Big Quest. Everybody, check Big Quest out. I'm going to put Thank the you. website on the when we do the close here, so they can find that. Because I'm about to answer the five questions. That's so, right. Hey, good for you. you got down. Well done. There you go. Indeed, I will, and we'll sh- send everybody else. And I'm very keen to see how you, you know, all the work that I know you'll do at the University of Arkansas, because I think that's a really important piece of work that you're doing and will help the retail community tremendously. So, again, lovely to have you back in the country. Lovely to be here, Wendy. Hope to see you soon somewhere in person for dinner. And meantime... And also, I definitely want to find out how to weasel my into one of these workshops. Oh, okay. All right. Well, keep us posted on your next one when you get to go live again. You can do that. You can do that. I will indeed. So thank you so much. Alrighty. So here's the thing. What's very clear in my conversation with Andy Murray is that shopper centricity is more important than ever before. The pandemic has only accelerated the change in the way people shop. They were already moving in that direction, but there is no going back now. We have to step back and totally be engaged in the way people are spending their time and money today in ways that we perhaps never did before. You know, we have to think about these fundamental issues. What is the role of the store, the physical store today, as people buy more and more essentials online, just, you know, to get it off their list? What does that say for things like new? How do we get people to think about new, new items, new products in a world where they're not in the store browsing as much anymore? You know, we've had, as Andy said, too many SKUs and too little innovation. And that's made the shelf a very crowded and unshoppable place. So the questions we have to ask ourselves now is, how do we think about the store? Is this the browsing moment that we at WSL have talked about for a long time? The answer is yes. And we have to think about the number of SKUs, how we get people into the aisles, how we get them to think about the the shelf at, at all, how we create a compelling opportunity for shoppers to browse in our stores now when so much of what they do will just be about getting it off the list before they even show up in the store. Five years ago, we did a study entitled Build My Magic Box, and it was driven by a shopper's comment, in a digital age, what should the store look like? And the shopper said, build me a magic box. And that's the moment we are at today. Sometimes we're a little prescient, but that's the moment. Build my magic box. But now it's not just about the velocity and efficiency of the trip. It is about how do people slow down in a physical space. We also have to say to ourselves, what does it mean for the people, the role of people in the store? John Nesbitt, the futurist, talked about the higher there is growth in technology, the higher the demand for human touch. It changes the dynamics. It changes the P&L, the financial pro forma that we use to evaluate physical stores. But we also have to think about our organizations and how do we now transform our organizations to moving away from item and price, package and shelf space to an empathetic role of solutions to address the customer's needs, the shopper's needs in the store today. As Greg Farah said in our last podcast a couple of weeks ago, we have to challenge the orthodoxies of the way we do our business. And that's exactly what Andy Murray said. We have to rethink every aspect, recognizing now, as he said, that the butterfly is out of the chrysalis, 
We just don't know how to be a butterfly yet. And that's the opportunity. So that's the thing. I suggest two things for you, not only that you go to our website at www.wslstrategicretail.com and look at our latest How America Shops insights as we move through the pandemic and out the other side. As you sign up for our WSL WhatsApp newsletter, our free trend letters, there is lots of free content for you on the website. But the second thing is also take a look at Andy's website, bigquest.com, B-I-G-Q-U-E-S-T.com. Answer his five questions. You'll find it intriguing. So that's it. Happy holidays. Be safe. Be well. Find a little joy. See you on the other side and definitely see you in the future. Just a reminder, the content of this podcast is the product of WSL Strategic Retail. You can't reproduce it or repurpose it without asking us, without written consent. So don't forget that. Copyright WSL Marketing Inc. 2020.